You know what I like about my buddy Marissa Chesluck is on her LinkedIn page, she anticipates that from the spelling of her name, you will not know how to pronounce it. So she adds it. Listen, listen. Marissa Chesluck. Marissa Chesluck. Smart. She spells it C-I-E-S-L-U-K. She is a certified leadership and executive coach. And we're going to talk to her this week on In Her Words. It is okay to be still. It is okay to be quiet. It's okay to, to listen and hear that internal voice. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. This weekend, I took my little recorder and my microphones, and I hoofed it down, way down in South Charlotte, and talked face-to-face with Marissa Chesluck. And the conversation quickly took an unexpected turn, so trigger warning. uh, If you have problems listening to uh, Frank talk from a recoverer from childhood abuse... Um, be forewarned. You know, we get real and fast and we talk about actual things and the people who have developed a lot of strength and a lot of integrity through confronting those things and how she brings that into her own particular skill set in coaching women in leadership and executive coaching. So, without further ado, Marissa Chesluck. Where were you born? I was born just outside of Richmond, Virginia, in Henrico, Virginia. Hospital or home? At hospital. For your mother, you're number what of how many? I am number two. I have an older brother. We are five years apart. It's just the two of you? Just the two of us. And is your brother still with us? He is. And are you guys close? That's an interesting story. <laughs> um, we are close. We're, um, we communicate. And, and now we are preparing to begin a journey with my mom's health and declining health. And so we have become a little bit more communicative in, in, these, in the last year or so. My experience, it's always best if you're on the same page. We are. We are. Yeah. We have a... We have a respect for each other. Good. We respect each other. My brother and I are very different people, and I think we have come to the realization that we are very different people. Sometimes I look at him and I'm like, how were we raised in the same house by the same <laughs> parents? Um, and also we respect those differences and recognize that we do only have each other once our parents you know, pass from this world. Um, and that's what it's all about. It's all about family and we figure it out. We make it work. Right. Um, my sister and I, our differences are very profound, mm-hmm. sort of politically, religious view of the world. Mm-hmm. Is that your difference with your brother, or is it? It's not. So um, this is part of my story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'll leave it at that. 
And so there's some, some really hard things that we've had to work through as a family and some really hard conversations that we've had to have as a family. And did your brother, was he like, oh, that didn't happen? No, he actually um, acknowledged that something did happen. Yeah. It's been a harder conversation with, um, with my parents. So um, about, about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, we sat down as a family and had some conversations because I was at a deep, dark place in my life and um, had to kind of grapple with the reality and the truth that was my life. And so sat down with my parents and sat down with my brother and faced it, dealt with it, navigated it. And um, it was hard. It was really hard. What helped you to prepare for that? A lot of therapy, a lot of conversations, a very strong faith, a very, um, a lot of courage, um, and a lot of just really standing true in who I am and the truth of my, of, of my story. But it gets a point, right, where there's no way around it. Yeah. Like you're either going to be in the deep, dark place or you're going to get help and you're going to have to confront it. Yeah. 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 And that's where I had reached. I had reached a very deep, dark place. And um, I was working with a therapist at the time. And she was like, you have, to, you have a choice. You either decide that you're going to move forward and, and not acknowledge what's there, what's keeping you from being in full relationship with your brother, being in full relationship with your parents, um, and accept that and move on, or you need to address it. And I decided that in order for me to move on, I needed to put my truth out there and have that conversation, have those conversations. And um, I did. And... It was a huge turning point in who I am as a human, as a, as a woman, as a person. Um, and I think it's made me a stronger partner. I think it's made me a stronger friend, a stronger now mom to a little girl. Um, but it's something I, yeah, it's something that was really hard, but it was a truth I had to face. Some people, their families never come back from that. People never speak to each other again. They don't associate. They won't go to funerals. If someone gets old, they don't want to be a part of the family. They spin off. They, they say, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, it's a testimony to you and also to your family yeah. that they were even willing to have the conversation because so many families are like, she's crazy, that didn't happen, you're making things up, you're exaggerating, mm -hmm. we all go through things. You know, there's all these ways of minimizing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not going to say that there wasn't that. Right. If I'm being, you know, fully honest and vulnerable there, there was some of that. Um, what I had to come to realization was, was this is my truth. And the people in the relationship and the family could have their own truth, but that did not take away from the truth that I hold. Um, and it, it wasn't easy. I mean, it was definitely a point where it was like, okay, we, we need to not talk for a little while. 
Um, and there are people now that are like, I can't believe that you still have a relationship with your family. I can't believe that you still have a relationship with your parents, with your brother. Um, and again, it's something that family matters to me. It's something that I value. My, my family's far from perfect. <laughs> um, but it's something that matters to me and something that I care deeply about. And I don't come from a large family, but I did come from a pretty tight family and we were there for each other. And um, I want to be that for my, for my family. It strikes me that there's a continuum among survivors, people who never speak about it at all, even to their best friends, and kind of are forever defined and warped by that. Mm -hmm all the way to people who that's all they can talk about. You can't hit them up at a cocktail party. Yeah. You know, yeah. They've written the book, made the film, yeah. that it completely defines them the other way. You have chosen to identify publicly in this way, mm -hmm. but not to go into all the gore. So how do you make the decision of where you are in terms of you know, what it is you tell people? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there are things that even my husband doesn't know, and he's probably the one that knows just about everything. There are a few friends that I have that probably know a lot more. Does your therapist know everything? I would say so, yeah. But there are even some things, Stuart, that um, are just too dark and scary for me to even say out loud sometimes. So I don't. Um, I, because of years of therapy, and because I now have the tools, I definitely feel like I am in a much safer place. So for me, this happened when I was very young. I didn't actually remember it until I got into graduate school. So my, my memory, my psyche, my body, whatever, was holding on to all of that for a really long time. And then I actually had gone, I was having, as you know, many people do, right? Many people go into graduate school and they just have this identity breakdown and meltdown. And I, I had one of those. I had like a nervous breakdown um, because of the pressures of grad school and whatnot. And I remember sitting in the counselor's office and one of the questions was, have you ever been sexually abused? And I paused and I was like, whoa, have I? Like, and just all of a sudden things started coming back. I had never admitted it. I had never remembered. I had never said anything to anyone about it until that point. And that was 23, 24 years ago. So I had never spoken of it or never shared it with anyone. Um, and then it took me another 10 or 15 years to sit down and have the conversation with my family about that. Um, you know, and when my daughter gets to a certain age, I don't know if that's something that I want to share with her or if that's what that looks like. Um, because I do care deeply about my family and I do care deeply about what what is shared and what is reflected. And again, re recognizing that this is my truth and what they hold is their truth and their story and their lens and it's not my story to tell. I can tell my story, um, but I can't tell their story and how they received it and how they engaged in that. Mm. You mentioned your faith. What 
did that look like? How did you engage your faith as part of this process? I think a big part of it was at one point, um, that was all I had. That was all I had. I had literally nothing else. Um, when I say, and I, my husband has heard this before, but I met my husband on one of my darkest days, like probably, um, you know, months or whatever before we met, I had contemplated like, what if I decided not to stay here on this earth? Um, so I always joke, I'm like, you met me on the darkest day and you were the brightest thing in my life ever. So, um, where were you? We met at a wedding in Gloucester, Massachusetts. <laughs> he lived here in Concord, North Carolina. I was here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we had to go all the way to Gloucester, Massachusetts to meet each other. But, um, yeah. And, and I, but I think my faith was all I had. And I didn't, I mean, and even in those darkest days, I didn't even know what that looked like or what that meant. Because I was definitely like, God, where are you? Because this is not what I imagined. This is not who I thought you were. This is not um, what I thought it would look like as a, as a woman of faith. But that's what kept me going. How old were you when this abuse began? Probably around seven or eight. And so you certainly would have memories. It's not like you were two or three. Mm -mm. And um, how old were you when it ended? I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. And um, so as you began recovering the memories, how long was it before you like shared them with anyone? So I was probably, I was in graduate school, so I was probably 21 or 22 before I even spoke it. And then I was probably in my early 30s before I actually like said it to other people. Like I said it to a therapist, to a counselor at that point in graduate school. Um, but then when I started, you know, I was drinking nonstop. That was my coping mechanism. I was also, um, this is crazy, but I was drinking to myself into an oblivion. And then I was also a marathon runner and was doing triathlons. And so I would literally drink myself into oblivion and get up the next day and go train and compete. And I don't know how I did that. I really don't. Those were definitely my coping mechanisms. They were also probably some saving graces as well because they kept me focused on something, the, the, the competing especially, kept me focused on something, a bigger goal. So what was it that led you to regular therapy? I couldn't, I realized that I had hit rock bottom and I couldn't keep, keep going on in the life that I was living because it wasn't in alignment with who I wanted to be and what I wanted out of life. What did it look like? What do you mean? Um, I was drinking all the time. I had, um, I just... I, I, I don't know. I didn't have any focus. I didn't have any, like, I, I, I didn't feel like I was my authentic self. I had on every single facade that you could have imagined. So nobody really knew the true me. 
Um, I don't even know that I knew my own true self at that point. I think I was just, you know, doing all the things that I was supposed to, you know, air quotes, supposed to be doing and should be doing. Um, like? Um, you know, like getting the great job, going to all the parties, being very social, um, you know, wearing all the right clothes, all of this stuff. But there was just this just pure and utter sadness inside of me um in despair like i just didn't feel hopeful which was which is not like me um and i just knew that i couldn't continue on living like this if i wanted to get married and start a family and have some stability i mean i i joke all the time i moved to charlotte and I told people, I'm like, this is just a blip on my radar. I'm not staying here for longer than three years. I'm not putting roots down here. I'm not buying a house. Don't ask me about it. Well, I'm coming up on 22 years of being <laughs> here in Charlotte. So um, some other power had a greater purpose for me to be here and to be able to put down some roots. So, And, and a lot of those roots were in my church family, my church community. Um, and those are people that are still dear friends that help me. church? I go to Myers Park United Methodist here huh. in Charlotte. Huge church. It is a huge church. It's hard for some people to find genuine community in a really yeah. big church, but it depends upon, you know, that little sort of small core group. Yes. It's a subset of a subset. Yeah. And so at the time when I joined, when I started going there, um, they had a very strong singles ministry, which... And this area was not something that a lot of churches offered. And so I was like, I'm going to go to this church because it's one of the only few churches that offers something for me as a single woman. Um, and like I said, many of those people are still dear friends. I mean, many of us have gone on, gotten married, had children, moved away, and we are still friends because we had that core experience together as we grew up together, both you know, figuratively and literally. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. How did you find the appropriate therapist? It's hard for people. Yeah. So my so I'm working with a different therapist now, but the one that um, that helped me kind of navigate all of these breakthroughs and all of these things, um, the conversations that I had to have, um, she was somebody that I found just online. And to be honest with you, she had her picture, she had on these just absolutely fun glasses and she had she did dog therapy and i love dogs and so i was like oh okay well if she likes dogs and certainly she is a good person and a good human um and she would bring her dog to the therapy sessions and that was a very calming what presence. kind of dog i don't remember but he was so cute he was much smaller than our dog um but he was just he was really small and a really mutt sweet. Or a yeah probably a mutt um, but he had been trained as a therapy dog. And so I just loved that. And she was just very, she was very direct, which I needed. And she called me out on my BS, which I also needed. But she also just had this just wise soul and compassion about her. And that was also what I needed. And she, um, she sat with me on some dark days. Um, and helped me get through all of that. And so I'm very grateful for her. Unfortunately, she's no longer practicing. So well, I have done. huge belief in therapy and therapists and have had 
my own experiences. And so, yeah. you know, I think it's not what people think it is. Mm -mm. And it's very, very different for different people. Yeah. But you need someone to make you feel safe. Yeah. They're not making you bad and wrong, but they're also not going to sit and let you spin lies yeah. in perpetuity. That doesn't serve you. Yeah. Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. When everything about you says I'm not. Yeah. And that was what I loved about her. Her name was Lynn. And she, she was like, you're not fine. I can see it written all over your face. I can see it in your body. You are not fine. And I'd be like, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm fine. Yeah. She, wouldn't, she wasn't going to take that for an answer. Then why are you here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> why are you paying me exactly. all this money? Exactly. But I, I am a huge mental health advocate, and I tell people all the time, I'm like, everybody should have a therapist. Yeah. Everybody should have one. And the interesting thing, and what I've found really recently, is the mental health has to come first. Yes. Like, if I'm not sleeping, and I'm constantly agitated and depressed and want to just curl in the fetal position. Everything I ask to begin there. And then once that's aligned, then my sleep, my consumption of water, if I'm eating green leafy vegetables, yes. and if I'm making sales calls yes. or conducting a social media strategy, marketing, yes. that's all going to fall in place once I'm healthier. 100%, 100%. We have to take care of the mind, body, and soul. And that's what, that's what I'm doing is I'm helping through my work is that I'm helping leaders take care of all three of those components. Because you're exactly right. If we're not taking care of one component, that's going to impact because we're whole beings. And our whole systems, our whole bodies, our, our minds, we're all operating together. And if one of those systems is out of whack, then it's going to impact how you're showing up how you're interacting with people, how you're engaging with people. So we got to take care of all those things. One of the things I do every day, and it is a non-negotiable for me, is I go for a walk. Nature is my happy place. It is where I have, it's the way that I connect with my spirituality High and five. my soul. Um, and so that's a non-negotiable. And even my husband will say to me, he's like, you need to go for a walk. Like, you need to go for a walk. And that's because, and people are often like, well, if you don't have time to do it, why are you taking a walk? You know, if you've got all these other things. And I'm like, I can't work on all of those other things unless my mind is right, unless my soul is right, and unless my body is right. I'm going for my walk because that's what my walk is going to accomplish. It's going to allow me to connect to my higher power. It's going to give my body some flow and blood. And it's going to feed my mind because that's when I get creative. That's when I come up with the best ideas. I always say I, I go on these walks and I solve world peace. Like I am just like doing it all and thinking about everything. So you, you uh, do you have time. a special place or do you just like got to get out the door and just walk around the neighborhood or. So we're about a mile from my greenway right Excellent. here. So I can walk down out of our neighborhood and get to the greenway in about a mile. So I usually go down there and walk and there's woods that I can walk there and that just, that usually soothes my soul. When I was in darkest days, running was my saving grace. And I can't run as much anymore. My body's just not into it as much anymore. But now walking is my saving grace. Like when I am on edge or I'm like, I'm just stuck in something and I can't get a breakthrough idea, I'm like, go for a walk, go look at nature. Because yeah, I mean, I, I know I, I laugh. I was laughing at myself yesterday because I was walking and I'm like, there's a blue heron, there's a white swan, uh, and there's a hawk. 
that uh. I look for every day on my walks. And so yesterday I hadn't seen the white swan in a few days. And so finally I was looking through the woods as I was walking and I saw her sitting there and I was like, hello, there you are. And it just totally changed my, my being and just the way that like when I came back, I was like, okay, I don't know what I was mad about when I walked out the door, but I'm in a much better place now. And that's, that's what we need. That's what we need. More in that. many, many different cultures, there's a spiritual attachment to yeah. birds and specific mm-hmm. birds from indigenous peoples to peoples in the East to, you know, all the different, to the Greeks. Yeah. You know, the attachment to birds and the attachment of spiritual meaning to yes. birds. Yes, I've been exploring that. I've been looking that up just to look at someone of what, a, what some of the, um, the animals mean when you see them. And it's been really interesting to see the alignment between like what I'm seeing and kind of what I'm experiencing in my life and where I am right now. I will journey. Google that stuff on the spot. I do too. <laughs> I do too. Because I, one day I was walking out and there was a hawk, I mean a big hawk, sitting on a, one of my neighbor's fence. And he was just sitting there. And we just stared at each other for like probably 30 seconds. And I'm like, what is this animal trying to tell me? Like, I, I do believe that it is a way that we are being communicated with and talked to. And so when I came back, I looked up to see what hawks are. And they're all about vision. Um, and, and looking forward. And, and I'm, that's something that I'm working through in my life right now is trying to create this, this bigger vision for who I am and how I want to show up in the world. So I'm making a big decision. I'm like, I'm going to go take that for a walk and I will get back to you. And I will. I'll go take, I'll ask that question before I go out on a walk. And I'm like, give me a sign. I'm all about signs and symbolism. And those things are very deep and profound for me. So I do feel like yeah there are signs out there if we just ask our questions when we go out on our walk or we go out into the world there are signs all around us giving us the answers there's a thomas edison quote you may have heard it never go to sleep without a request to your subconscious Ooh, i like that and some people say write it down yeah and don't worry about the answer yeah and then when you get up the next day just start freeform writing mm. and see because a lot of times sleep is intended to synthesize a whole bunch of things that we have out you know conflicting and bouncing off each other and too much information and yeah. I thought that was really curious that he yeah. would say that that is that also is. a scientific way of looking at yeah. it that it's Something is stuck down there and it can't get out. So you need to let everything sort of settle down. Yeah. The body is amazing. Yeah. It is so amazing. Yeah. The more I learn and the, the yeah, about the conscious and subconscious world that we, you know, experience fascinates me. When you were a, a little girl, like two or three years old, before any of this happened, how would your parents, the people around you, how would they have described you, your personality? Hmm. Um, I was probably a very, what I would have, what I would have been called shy back then. Um, and also very bubbly, like just very full of life and curious, um, which I see a lot of my, my daughter, like asking a lot of questions. Um, but I probably was was probably more in the in the background, probably a little bit more quieter. 
um, than others. I came, I come from a very, I come from a small family, but I come from a very tight knit family and I'm probably one of the quieter voices in our family. So I often, my dad and I share this. We are often the people that we may be in a room full of people and everybody may be talking. Um, and he and I may say something to contribute to the conversation. Um, I'd like to think it's profound, at least when my dad speaks, it's very profound, but it's like we're taking all of the world in. Um, and that's probably, I, 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 probably that's probably how they would have described me as a young girl. So to this day, when you go to a dinner party and you don't know everybody, do you sort of sit back and take it in? Mm-hmm. I'm taking everybody in. Um, I'm, I'm very much a listener. I'm very much a deep person and I'm often, um, I get this from my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, very intuitive. So I'm a very good reader of people. Um, and sometimes I don't even know why I'm getting the messages that I'm getting about people, but I'll sit back and just kind of take people in and, and kind of read them. Um, and then, yeah, when I'm ready to contribute to the conversation, I'll contribute. And I hope that I offer some profound wisdom and, and strong contributions when I, when I do speak. Do you get things intuitively by meeting people face-to-face in the same space that you really can't get in a Zoom call? I do, but I think because we've spent so much time in the Zoom land, I think I'm starting to hone that a little bit more. Because um, even when I meet with potential clients, like I can tell right away like if we're going to be we're going to kind of jive if we're going to connect. Um, and I can just tell, you know, oftentimes if there's something deeper there, um, I'm not a surface level person. I'm a very go deep, um, right away. Like I, I don't do the small talk. And so, um, I can usually tell people, I can usually read them pretty quickly and get that sense from them. You say you were quiet and you still are a quiet person, but you yeah. told me you thought it was very important that women's voices come forward. So where does that come from and what do you mean by that? There's an author, her name is Meredith Feynman, and she wrote a book called Brag Better. And so I want to give her credit for this, but she talks about this concept that we have, um, or this inverse relationship that we have with, the, with, with voice and with uh, volume and um, I'm trying to think of the way that she puts it, volume and like contribution. So oftentimes the loudest voices in a room are the ones that get the most credit for things. They're the ones that get the most noticed. They're the ones that get seen the most. Oftentimes we don't pay attention to those ones that are not as loud. And so I just wanna make sure that we're creating spaces where women feel like their voices can be heard, that they can be at the table. Um, and creating a space that welcomes all of those voices. And so what that might look like is if you are in a space where you recognize that someone isn't speaking, you may say, hey, Stuart, I would love to hear from you. Like, we haven't heard from you tonight. What's on your mind? Tell us a little bit about that. And so creating those spaces where we can invite more women's voices and more underrepresented voices to the table so that we can create a more inclusive and a more impactful and more profound and powerful world. I think it's um, so many times we're missing so many voices at the table and we need to create space to invite them. I've noticed that if somebody talks all the time, it 
decreases the value. And sometimes strategically, it can be beneficial to sort of keep your powder dry mm -hmm. and wait until you hear all this long pontificating to then come through with the really terse statement, mm -hmm. like a simple, direct statement, mm -hmm. like bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like, do you even believe that? Yeah. <laughs> That's something people have said to me. Yeah. Do you, like, even your heart isn't in that. Yeah. Then yeah. why are you saying it? Yeah. And I think we need more people to call that out. Yes. Um, because, yes, with all due respect, I think a lot of times we hear men's voices at the table and they are, they're just pontificating. They're just sharing bullshit. And it's like, hey, don't you wanna hear what somebody else has to say? Don't you wanna hear another perspective or another experience that may not be the mainstream or that may not be yours? Maybe another person's lived experience? Um, because that's gonna help us see the world differently and think differently and ex expand our minds um and that's that's what i want to do like i yeah we need more people to to call that that out like i said i, I want to change that because i want to create a better world for my daughter to live in than i lived in i'm also really passionate too because for so long my voice got hidden my voice my voice got lost and some of that was because of what happened to me and some of that is because of the, the, the society, the organizations that I was interacting in um, and the leaders that I was working with. And so I wanna create a world where my daughter doesn't have to fight for her spot at the table. Well, already your daughter's an only child, right? Mm -hmm. So by virtue of that, by virtue of your only child being a girl, mm -hmm. um, she's able to get the attention of two people. Theoretically, yes. <laughs> Theoretically, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, sometimes kids need to know there's a li limit. You know, mom and dad need to talk right now. Yeah. And like, we can't spend all our time. This has to be a, we all talk. Yeah. Know? But I want her to always know that her voice matters. Yes. And that's what I want for every woman, for, for any person that identifies as an underrepresented group, I want them to know that their voice matters because for so long, again, this is my personal story, for so long, I didn't feel like my voice mattered. And I did stay silent, I did stay quiet. There are a lot of different reasons for that. But I also want her to know that she has voice in this world and her voice is her power and I want her to use that power. And I want, and, and, and in showing her that, I'm also learning to use my voice and be stronger in my voice and be stronger in my power. And that's really hard. <laughs> How old is your daughter? She's six and a half. And so first grade? Kindergarten. Kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So how have you been able already to sort of coach her up? Because she's probably around boys. She is. We're giving her the tools. We're giving her the tools and, what, and the words um, and the self-awareness. 
So oftentimes I go into coach mode with with my daughter, which feels really weird. <laughs> but um, can be a good thing. It can be a good thing. Um, but so some, she's six going on twenty six. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, you know. By virtue of, like you said, by virtue of being an only child, she hears a lot of conversations that I probably didn't hear my parents having when I was much younger. And also, we were home for a good chunk of time during COVID. She was here. We were still working. We were still living. We were also trying to navigate a major pandemic during her primary developmental years. So she heard a lot. And also, we're giving her a lot of tools to say, which I did not have growing up, like that makes me really sad, or that's really frustrating for me, or you're making me really angry and mad right now. And that is not language that I had growing up. Now, I will say as a parent, sometimes that's hard when she says, mommy, you're frustrating me, or you're making me really angry right now. But I want her to have that language because that's her power to say that. So when somebody is doing something that she doesn't like, she can say that. To this day, I find it difficult to say that I'm angry without getting angry. Mm. And, um, you know, um, uh, I told my wife this weekend, we're in our 60s. Yeah. And I said, I feel like I'm being chided. Mm. And she said, no, I'm just expressing how this makes me feel. Yeah. And I said, and I'm expressing how that <laughs> makes me feel. <laughs> and those are the conversations that we need to empower people and give people the tools and the confidence and the competence to have. I didn't have that. I wasn't given those tools. It sounds like you weren't given those tools and that language. But that's how we have, that's how we, that's how we create change. We have these deeper conversations and we say how we feel and we help each other work through it. You know, my dad always said I was a big dreamer and whenever I started dreaming, it cost people time and money. And here's what I would say to that. I am a dreamer. And I, the reason that I'm doing the work that I'm doing is because I wanna disrupt that. I wanna disrupt these organizational cultures that are toxic because I've come from toxic workplaces and they did a number on me as a person. And oftentimes organizations don't see that. Oftentimes it's just because we are a culture and we are mimicking the leaders that we've seen before us and we haven't created our own authentic space and leadership style and in that role. And so we're just continuing to perpetuate the system. I wanna stop that. And I know that my work, sure, I wanna save the world. I'm doing my one little part and I am hoping and praying and I know and trust that it will have a ripple impact because my daughter's watching, my clients are doing their work. That's going to have a ripple effect onto their, the people that they're working with. That's going to have a ripple effect into their organization and in the organization, you know, down on. I'm not naive enough to think that I can't, that I'm going to, you know, change the whole po po political system and whatnot but I am doing what I can to help people be the better, bolder, braver leaders so that we can change this crap, this BS, the way that we operate right now, because it's not working. It's not working for our political system. It's not working for 
our faith communities. It's not working for our community organizations. It's not working for anybody. It's not working for our family units. And I want to be part of that change. Well, I think you already are. When your father said that um, dreaming costs time and money, mm. now <laughs> organizations are building in time to dream. Yeah. And great leaders build time in their schedules to shut the phone off, the laptop yeah. off, to get out into nature, to go for one. Uh, Sarah Blakely famously talks mm -hmm. about driving around in circles, taking extra time to drive to work in the morning with, you know, quiet space, yeah. with times where there's not emails flying in and phones ringing, that building in the dream time. So, not true, you know, yeah. sorry, Dad, not true. You know, <laughs> no, times, I know. Time yeah. spent dreaming actually can bring in a lot of money. Yeah, it does, it does. and. My dad said that. My dad was a, um, a blue collar worker. He owned his own business. He was hardworking. Um, and I was. I was the one that came in with the big ideas and the big dreams. I've always been that visionary person. I think, it's, I think it goes back to some of that intuition that I have. It's just who I am and how I show up in the world. And maybe some people would say that I put on blinders and I don't see all the bad stuff. That's not true. I see the bad stuff. But I am focused on building a better world. And I know that that sounds very, you know, people will roll their eyes at me or whatever. Fine. I'm doing it. I want to do it. I have a call to do that. Um, and yeah, it doesn't cost time and money. It doesn't cost time and money to go take a walk. Yeah, it, it may cost you time to be away from whatever, but that is time well spent. Because um, like I said, that's when I come up with my best ideas. That's when I can clear my head. I can reset my focus. I can reset my attitude. And I come back a better human, a better person. Amen. The other great thing, to go back to your point about changing the culture, is the great resignation mm. and post-COVID businesses in order to attract and retain talent that gets things done have had to modify the patriarchy and the hierarchy and everything else. I mean, you can't run a McDonald's franchise if everybody walks off the job. Yeah. They have of necessity. And there are just certain industries in which they've managed to cling to this old way of doing business but ultimately the market will teach them that lesson yeah. because the talent will walk across the street. Yeah. And I think a lot or of, create their own. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are seeing that now. I think a lot of companies and organizations are seeing that now. People want space to pause. They want that space to take a deep breath. Um, they want opportunities to grow and learn. And we're seeing that we're seeing that, um, in our organizations and with employees that that's that's what they're craving for that's what or that's what they're craving that's what they're asking for and the companies that say yeah we're going to invest in you and we're going to get you a coach or we're going to you know give you this amount of time to take off and go and do things that you need to do so you can reset those are the companies that are probably going to survive hardest decision for somebody is to go from something which is safe 
you've got the 401k, you've got the health insurance, and you know it'll keep paying you well into six figures, and it's sucking your soul out. Yeah. But you've got kids who have to go to college, you've got the mortgage, you've got club membership. How do you help women decide when it's time to just cut the strings? Yeah. Part of it is I share my story. And my story is that on March 8th, 2019, I walked away from all of that. And the reason so that I, was pre-COVID. It was pre-COVID. I was an I was an early bloomer. <laughs> I was an early adopter. Um, yeah, because my soul had been sucked, and I was dropping my daughter off at daycare and crying all the way to work. I was coming home and venting and yelling and just angry um, about all the stuff at work. And I had known for like ten or fifteen years that I was supposed to be a coach, and I just was afraid to listen to that internal voice and. At some point, that voice started screaming at me, and so I could no longer um, not listen to it. And when I drove away from that campus, I remember looking in my rearview mirror and thinking to myself, oh my God, Marissa, what have you just done? <laughs> what have you just done? You were walking away so from- So did you quit? I resigned, yeah. On I, the spot. Well, I, re I gave two weeks notice, which was, I don't necessarily encourage that, I was at a breaking point. I was at a breaking point where I had no other choice. I had to, it was time for me to go. And I think part of that was because my soul had been sucked so dry. And I wasn't showing up as the mother I wanted to be, the wife that I wanted to be. I wasn't showing up as the friend, the daughter, just a basic human. And so I had to, I had to make some really hard decisions. So when I talked to my clients about what's right for you. We've got to figure out what, where you are on that continuum and how do you want to show up and what does success look like for you? And then we make some decisions from that point. They're hard decisions though. And sometimes people come and they're like, I got to find a new job. And then we start working together and they're like, okay, I can do this. It's just kind of some reframing and some rethinking and, and getting some things back you know, on track and refocusing and resetting. Sometimes that's, that's what clients need as well. Do you call this executive coaching, leadership coaching? What do you? I call it holistic leadership coaching. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that word holistic? Because I do want my clients to take care of their mind, their body and their soul. And so a lot of times my clients will come to me and they're like, this isn't work related at all, but I just had a really crappy morning with my kid and she was throwing you know, tantrum all over the place and I was late to work and I'm like, great, let's talk about that because that's gonna impact how you come in to work. And also you are a whole person. So you can't separate all of that. You can't separate the fact that your nervous system is on edge and you've just walked into work or got on your Zoom call or whatever. Let's talk about what you need in this time and space. Do you have a coach? I do. I do. Her name is Jessica Lackey, who I know you've had <laughs> on this. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
And I, I tell clients all the time, because people always ask me that, like, like, do you have a coach? And I'm like, yes, I have a therapist and I have a coach. And I highly recommend both for everyone as well. And how do you decide, because I have coach, coaches and mm -hmm. therapists, um, so if you have something that's going on that's upsetting you, yeah. Um, so how do you decide what goes where and what the crossover is and that kind of thing? Because you know, coaches are not therapists and they keep saying that, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, if a client comes to me and they're like, they need to talk about something, coaches are focused on taking people from the point where they are to the point where they want to be. Sometimes when you're working through that, some of your past comes up, right? Oftentimes what I'll tell people is that the therapist is there to help you kind of process the past and get you to where you are currently. Um, so if somebody does bring up something in a session, well, I'm not going to break my ethics and, and, and my coach ethics. If I feel like it's something out of the scope of what I am qualified to, to work through, then I will say, you know what, that is something really poignant. I think we need to put a, you know, a point in that or a pin in that. And I think that's something that you might want to consider exploring with a mental health therapist, um, because that's something that is maybe keeping you from moving forward. And then we either figure out like, do we, can we continue our relationship? Can we continue our partnership or do they need to go see a therapist and then come back when they're ready? And I've had clients where I've said to them, I think there's some things that you need to work through before we can start taking the next steps. If you have huge anxiety and depression, you're not sleeping. Yeah. Then my experience is you got to go take care of that. Yeah. It'd be the same as if you had any kind of really serious illness that landed you in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to go work through that with somebody that is qualified um, to help you manage that and navigate that. That's not my area of expertise. Right. Um, yeah, I, I actually was, I'll share this with you just for a point of context. So um, Jessica had had me do a, an exercise with her in one of our coaching sessions where we were looking at or taking a doing a visualization where I was meeting my future mentor. And so we went in and I met my future mentor and kind of got to know her and, and got some feedback and some insights from her. And then a a couple weeks later, I was working with my therapist and she's like, we're gonna go back and meet your inner child. And so interestingly enough, so I was going back in time and meeting my inner child where Jessica was meeting my future mentor. And interestingly enough, both my inner mentor and my inner child shared similar messages with me. And I thought it was fascinating. Which was? To rest and to be, to be still and to listen. And those are poignant messages all the way around. Um, and that is where I am on my journey right now. I need to hear those messages of, it is okay to be still, it is okay to be quiet. It's okay to, to listen and hear that internal voice um, and honor her as well. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived <laughs> is this little piece of audio, uh, what is your legacy? Oh. My legacy is that I want to inspire the fire within each person. I firmly believe that it is the collective energy of people on fire 
that is going to change this world and make it a better place. And I want to inspire that fire in others and help them shine brighter and shine on. <laughs> so do you give it oxygen in this metaphor? Do you light the match? What is it? Are you the spark? So we have this fire within us, which is our authentic selves. Yeah. How do you bring that to a roar? Depends on what that person needs. Mm. Um, I will often say, um, you bring the spark and I'll bring the match. Um, I had a boss early in my career who said to me, Marissa, you are a fire starter. And for years, because she meant it like I was spending too much time talking around with my, my colleagues and my friends and things like that. And for years, I carried around this shame that I was a fire starter, that I was starting little fires here and there. And then one day it dawned on me that, no, Marissa, you are a fire starter. You are helping light that fire inside of other people. And sometimes they come to me and they're completely burned out and they need some embers to be stoked. Sometimes they come and they've got a little bit of a fire in there and they just need a little bit more oxygen or fuel. And sometimes it's blazing and they need to figure out how to contain it. Um, or focus it. Or focus it, yeah. Um, and so it just depends on what people need. And like I said, I've got that very intuitive spirit that I can t typically sense what people need after some conversation with them and, and help them figure that out. God bless you for making time. Thank you. And thank you for what you do for thank these you. women. Thank you. Thank you for letting me share my story. What I think I particularly admire about Marissa is that she does not come off as a victim, that she has done the heavy lifting and continues to do it and a lot of work in therapy and you know my hats off to people who do that because there was really no other way so marissa thank you and thanks for for being so honest in her words is a production of the queen city podcast network in cooperation with balto creative media Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Look for man listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported manlistening.com. In her words, the podcast and now Voice Locket, the sponsor of this program, voicelocket.com. Check it out. Let me know if I can help you. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. <laughs>